Let us begin our Trinity Sunday sermon with prayer. Triune God, we thank you for revealing to us the things we need to know in order to be saved. As today's text is so often overlooked, ignored, and misunderstood by so many in the visible Christian church, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit to work through the words of today's sermon that we may know and understand the basic truths taught in today's text so that we are able to reject those teachings that stand against it and embrace the wonderful comfort it gives us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text for our sermon is the Gospel history according to St. John as recorded in chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. To remind you of that account, I will read the first five verses. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these miraculous signs you are doing unless God is with him. Jesus replied, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless someone is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the earliest Christian pericope that we know of contained this text as the text for the second Sunday after Pentecost. In other words, it was not originally a Trinity Sunday text. Do you know why? Because as we hear the text, we see today's text is about conversion. We get to see firsthand Nicodemus, who the Holy Spirit is working on, come to talk to Jesus. And Jesus, while talking to Nicodemus about conversion, is working to convert him. And we know it worked because three years later, Nicodemus, who had met at night in secret because he didn't want to lose his position of authority on the Sanhedrin, Three years later, Nicodemus did not go along with the Sanhedrin's decision to crucify Jesus. And he boldly went with Joseph of Arimathea to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body and put Jesus' body in the tomb. So today, as we look at Nicodemus' conversion and the discussion Jesus has with him, we get to see in this text all three members of the Trinity at work. So we see the triune God's work in your conversion. Now, to me, one of the funniest passages of Scripture, although Nicodemus did not mean for it to be funny, is that he's trying to grapple over what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you have to be born again. And Nicodemus says in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And ever since I was a kid and remember hearing this text, I have these visions of an adult woman with a frying pan telling her son, Get away from me as he tries to be born again. But lots of times in Christianity, you'll hear people ask you, are you a born-again Christian? Yet what do they mean by born again? They mean, did you rationally look at the evidence? Did you hear what Scripture has to teach and decide for God and give your heart to Him? That defies Jesus' words here. Think about it. The baby in the womb does not decide when it's going to be born. It didn't even decide its conception. It did not have any choice in the matter. Mama's body determines when the baby is born. 
And really, we could say God determines when the child is conceived, but that's an act between mama and papa. So Jesus responds, truly, truly, I am telling you, unless a man is born from... And the inspired Greek that John wrote in says, the water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Greek language will use the definite article for something that is well-known or something that stands out as unique. Nicodemus, as a member of the Sanhedrin, would have heard of John the Baptist baptizing people. He would have heard, Jesus doesn't have a, a plethora of disciples yet, he doesn't have all 12 yet, but he would have heard of Jesus sending them out to baptize. Nicodemus knows here the water that Jesus is talking about is the water of baptism. And Jesus explains how that can be by adding, and the Spirit. Once again, in the inspired Greek language, there is the definite article there. We're not talking about a spiritual thing. We are talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works through the Word of God. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with water to seal himself in, to create that new person. How do we get the new life? It's the Holy Spirit's work. And it's very interesting. You've heard me say in many a sermon, we have to pay attention to the prepositions in the Greek language. The Greek language here in the time of the Bible had two different words for source. Apo, which would be from the outside of something to the outside of something else. Or ek, from the inside of something to the outside of something. So when Jesus says born of, a, of the flesh, he would be talking about from the inside of mama's womb coming to the outside world. And when he talks about being born from the Spirit, he's talking about something that comes from within God's kingdom, the Spirit, to being placed in what's outside of you and I in our natural state, the kingdom of God. Now, recall he told Pilate three years later, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is the invisible church. It's his rule in your heart. So, to be born again means the Holy Spirit has taken you who were dead in the Spirit and made a new man that put you in the kingdom of God. And even now, you can look around and you'll just see people. But with the eyes of faith, you see the kingdom of God. People proclaiming the word of God, trusting in the forgiveness of sins. It takes an act of the Holy Spirit so that you can see the kingdom of God even right here in this world. And yes, that culminates when Christ returns and makes that kingdom fully visible and gives us the new heavens and the new earth and our glorified bodies. Jesus elaborates further why it is that the Holy Spirit has to give birth to us. Verse 6, that which is born from the flesh is flesh, and that which is born from the Spirit is spirit. You cannot understand these verses unless you believe a doctrine that is clearly taught in the Scripture that is unique to Lutheran theology, original sin. When Adam and Eve were created, we are told in Genesis, they were created in the image of God. In other words, they were holy. But they fell into sin and were told when they begot children of their own that those children were in their image, not in the image of God, in Adam and Eve's image. They had fallen into sin. They were no longer holy in and of themselves. They had lost that image. And of course, the ultimate proof of that is the fact that Cain murders his brother Abel. Your parents gave birth to your body. They gave birth to all that. They, and God created that in your mother's womb. But they could not give you the new man. They could not give you the faith. 
To use a modern analogy, our society today is really uh, embracing horror films based on zombies. In God's eyes, until the Holy Spirit gives birth to the new man, you are a zombie. You are the walking dead. You have flesh, but you don't have that new man. As God promised Adam and Eve, and he put animosity between them and the devil and gave them faith, hence the Holy Spirit gave them the new person, so he sends the Holy Spirit to create a new person in you. That new person... That person is connected to Christ. That person doesn't sin while you also have your sinful nature. They fight against each other. That person is faith. That person clings to the cross of Christ. And so he tells Nicodemus, Do not be perplexed that I said to you, you must be born anew. And the Greek word used here originally in classic Greek language meant from above. All the other times it's used in the New Testament clearly means anew. The Holy Spirit and Jesus intentionally use this word. It's a birth from above because the Holy Spirit gives it to you and it's new. It's not by the ways of this world. It's not by flesh. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So he says, the wind blows where it wishes and its sound is heard, but you do not know where it has been and where it will be. It is the same way with all who have been born of the Spirit. Now we live here in Wyoming. Almost all of us have been knocked over by 88 mile an hour wind gusts in Wyoming. And we, yeah, that's definitely coming from the south. But how far south? Do you know where that wind gust began? As it blasts through Casper and, and hits buildings, it may move and come around and everything. Do you know how far that will go? No. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. You and I can proclaim the word of a Savior... But we're not the ones who make it stick. We don't know how far the Holy Spirit has traveled through that word and where he's going to end up. It's his job. And as I said in last week's sermon, that takes a lot of pressure off us. We're called to share the good news of a Savior, but we're not called to make it stick. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So we don't have to argue people into believing or convince them. And along with that, you don't know how far it's going to go. I've told you in the past, I, I've had people where it was the ideal circumstances and I had the right word of God on my tongue and I told them. And they didn't become believers that minute. Sometimes I've had the privilege of seeing later that the Holy Spirit was not done blowing in their lives. And later they would come to faith. Sometimes I wonder, did they ever? That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's His work. He gives you the privilege in sharing the word. So we see the triune God at work in your conversion. We see the Holy Spirit's work. He enters your heart and he creates faith. And he does that especially through the waters of baptism. But we also see he always does that through the word. The word of something. That gets into the work of Jesus. That tells us what the big thing is. We have to have faith in that the Holy Spirit creates. Nicodemus responded by saying to Jesus, how can these things happen? Jesus responded by saying, you on your part are the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things. Remember, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. They're supposed to be making sure the people are holding to the pure doctrine, the right teaching of the word of God. You're in a position of teaching the word of God, the foremost position, and you don't get this? Jesus is chewing him out here. And this is why we're very careful who we call to be teachers in our churches and pastors and leaders, because there are some basic Bible truths that if they don't get, they have no business being in those positions. But Jesus gets into it. He says, truly, truly, I'm telling you that we are speaking what we've perceived and we are testifying to what we have seen. And you are not receiving our testimony. 
Who is the we here? Is it Jesus and John the Baptist? Or is it Jesus, true God, and, and the Holy Spirit working through his word? Jesus says, if I spoke earthly things to you and you do not believe, then how will you believe if I spoke heavenly things to you? Here's why we need faith, brothers and sisters in Christ. Earthly things are basic things. I've talked to you about birth and use that as an analogy about the birth the Holy Spirit gives you. That's faith. If you don't get that, how are you going to get the spiritual things? It's Trinity Sunday, brothers and sisters in Christ. Believe it or not, the doctrine of a triune God is a heavenly thing. It's above and beyond our understanding. I was an engineering student. I took a lot of science classes. I took engineering physics. And there's a lie in physics. It goes like this. Two objects cannot take up the same place at the same time. This is why your car hydroplanes when there's water on the road. That's either going to be the water or your car tire. Well, the Trinity defies that. How can Jesus be true God and true man? And how can there be three yet only one? And I took a lot of math as an engineering student. And I can tell you every one of my professors would have been justified if I had wrote on a math equation three equals one. That defies the principles of all of our mathematics. The Trinity defies the ways of this world. But God is the one who created the laws of physics and the principles of mathematics. He is above them. He created them for this universe, heavenly things. How can God be three but one? That defies logic and understanding. Yet it is God's principle. And it's a heavenly thing. He tells it to you so that you can believe. And as we did, as we worked through that Athanasian Creed, we can sit there and we can say, it's not this, it's not this, it is this, it is that, it works this way. But the exact how it can be, the Holy Spirit gives us the faith to accept it. Lord, you are smarter than I am. Later on in our text, in verse 13, Jesus is going to say something else. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus is standing in front of Nicodemus, or sitting in front of him, and yet he's in heaven? This also defies the ways of this world because he's true God who became true man. He's not a new substance as if God and man were put in a blender. His divinity and his humanity are separate things, but they're in constant communication. They are connected so that whatever happens according to one nature happens by the entire God-man, Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, don't think about that too hard because it defies logic. It's something we accept, but it's comfort for us because he is our Savior. And that gets into the first thing Jesus does for us, where he said that, speaking of heavenly things and you don't understand those, no one has ascended up to heaven except the Son of Man who came down from heaven and who is in heaven. Jesus is the Word. He's the one who spoke, let there be light. He's the spokesman for the Trinity, and he comes to tell us those heavenly things that are above the principles God created to govern this world. And the Holy Spirit works through that message to create that faith. This also tells us Jesus, who is on earth talking to Nicodemus, who according to his divine nature is still at that very time in heaven, it also tells us that he's our intercessor. He's the go-between because he's God and man. So he talks to man for God and he talks to God for man. This reveals a lot of his role. And he continues on in verse 14. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so it's also necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up so that all who continue to believe in him may continue to have eternal life. 
The Israelites grumbled against God in spite of seeing the plagues against Egypt, in spite of seeing the Red Sea part, in spite of the manna and everything, and God sent serpents to bite them when they rebelled against God. And the serpents in that area make our rattlesnake here in Wyoming look like child's play. You had minutes to do something or else that venom would kill you. This was a punishment for not obeying God. And it wasn't the the serpent itself that Moses was told to fashion on a pole that healed them. It was the obedience. God healed them. All they had to do was look. You have a couple of minutes to look at that. And you know what? Many of them refused to obey. And it's the same thing now. Christ, the big thing here is, as Jesus has just spelled out, is the Savior. You have this life. That's it. To look to Him for salvation. He goes to the cross as our substitute. He is perfectly holy as our substitute. Christ on the cross is God's proof to you that your sins are being paid for. Christ off the cross is God's receipt to you that your sins are paid for in full. So we see here Jesus is the Word, He's the intercessor, but ultimately He's the Savior and the substitute. That's the Son's work, and the Holy Spirit works through that word. When we look to Him and only to Him, His holiness, His good works, His righteousness, then we're obeying God because He wants us to believe it, and the Holy Spirit creates that obedience, that faith. So what's the Father's work? Let's get to the most well-known passage of all Scripture, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Once again, we see Jesus as a Savior. But God the Father has ruled over all creation to bring you to and keep you in the faith. God the Father planned your salvation. Let's get into the doctrine of predestination or election. I often wonder, what happens if I fall from faith? And and for those who are embracing a sin, they need to hear they can. But for those who worry and aren't embracing a sin and letting it have a place in their heart, they need to hear the good news of the doctrine of election. God the Father knew you before had the Son say, let there be light. And he planned to bring you to and keep you in your salvation. He's ruled over all creation. This was his plan to not just save you, but the whole world. So that if somebody ends up in hell, they have only themselves to blame. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's work this in reverse on Trinity Sunday. Conversion. What's the Father's job? He has ruled over time in history to have that word come to you, to have you baptized so the Holy Spirit is sealed in your heart. God the Son's rule is, He's the intercessor, the Word, He's the Savior, because He's our substitute. And the Holy Spirit works through that message and he creates the new man in you, which is faith, so that you cling to Jesus as your Savior, knowing this was all part of the Father's plan. See the work of the triune God in your conversion. Amen. Now praise we the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit with them one, and may the Son on us bestow the gifts that from the Spirit flow. Amen.